Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I am joined by Martin Prock. Martin is a professor of social and economic history at Utrecht University, and he is the co-author, along with Jan Luten van Zanden, of the book Pioneers of Capitalism, The Netherlands, 1000 to 1800, which we are discussing today. Martin, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. To start with, did I butcher any of those Dutch words or names? Well, my co-author's first name is actually Jan Luyten. Luyten. Luyten, yeah. So that's an UI is impossible to pronounce for anyone raised in English. Okay, I'll give it a shot on my my outro. I'll repeat his name and we'll see if I remember. Let's wait and see. So how did you and your co-author come to write this book? This book has a predecessor which was commissioned by a publisher for a series in Dutch on uh, Dutch history, uh, which is a bit of a complicated affair because, um, like the United States, uh, the Netherlands are a relatively young nation in Europe. Uh, That is to say, it didn't exist in 1500. It sort of half existed in 1600. It only officially existed since 1648. So the series, however, starts in the Stone Age. Anyway, people were writing books about the Stone Age, the Middle Ages, and so on and so forth. But the publisher noted that they didn't pay proper attention to economic or social developments. So they commissioned a separate book on that. It was published in 2012 or 13, I'm not sure. And then we thought about publishing it in English. But the problem was that this is a very different sort of audience. The Dutch book was about something that you never heard of. It's called the Polder model. And it's the way that the Dutch describe how our society works. But to make it interesting for a foreign audience, we decided to reorganize the text with capitalism as its focus. And so basically, it well, it does use parts of the older book, but it's really totally rewritten. And one of the other things that we included was the colonial history of the Netherlands, which in the Dutch series was assigned to somebody else. So we were not permitted really to talk much about it. But of course, the publisher in the United States said, you can't do without it because people will expect to hear about slavery, exploitation, and so on. So we brought that in. That's the history of the book. And so it's an economic and social history of the Netherlands in this in this broad time period. It is. It is, but... It's framed in an institutional history of the Netherlands in that period, because in our interpretation of the economic and social developments of the Netherlands, 
indeed the emergence of Dutch capitalism, the institutions play a major role. So you get really political, economic, and social history all mixed together. But very, we do have something on religion. We talk a little bit about the arts, but Rembrandt is a minor character in this book. And the word capitalism is a word that means everything and nothing, depending on who you're talking to. Do you have a working definition um, as it's, uh, it's we a, do. it figures yeah. in the title? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you're absolutely right. Huh? It's uh, one of those uh, buzzwords like love, capitalism. Uh, everybody uses them, but uh, always in a slightly different way. The way we define it is... Uh, a society which obviously has markets, but there are very few societies without them. The key to us is that a large chunk of the population, possibly the majority, works for wages. So is employed by somebody else, is no longer running their own businesses, and because that's the sort of traditional economic model of the past, is that shopkeepers, artisans, farmers, because the majority of the humanity were farmers in the past, they all were operating their own business uh, and working for somebody else was for a small minority of the population or you were enslaved, but that's uh, still another way of organizing the economy. But here you have free labor, free perhaps between inverted commas, but still people who offer their labor power to an employer and get rewarded by a wage. That's the basic definition that we use. Part of the title of the book is the word pioneers. So it's part of the thesis of this book that the Dutch were maybe the first modern, Uh, uh, somewhat modern capitalist uh, society or... Uh, respond yeah, to that yeah, yeah. with, no, all, with all the caveats. So we do not claim they were the first. Okay. Because I think that would be hard to uh, do in the face of what was happening in uh, Renaissance, or do you say Renaissance Italy? What is the, it? The, that... the first Renaissance. Okay. Renaissance. At least Italy. in American English. Yeah. So already before the Netherlands, or maybe I should say the Low Countries. Uh, this is Belgium and, and modern Netherlands. Are, exactly. And they, these countries were part of a larger region in uh, Europe. But Italy and the Low Countries were the most urbanized and therefore most market oriented economies in medieval Europe. So um, I think uh, Belgium, Italy, could equally claim to be pioneers of capitalism, but the Dutch were also part of that development, yes. And of course, there is a an implied, um, if you will, critique in here, and that is to say that um, contrary to what many, for instance, in the United States believe, it was not necessarily England. So I was aware that the Dutch economy was being urbanized and marketized prior to to England, but then it takes off, you know, more notably in England subsequently. So 
What yeah. you know? Why didn't the industrial revolution happen in the Netherlands? Ah, okay. Let's first make the distinction, right? So, uh, in 1997, uh, a Californian uh, economic historian uh, called Jan de Vries, he's in Berkeley, uh, published a book together with a um, Dutch colleague called Ad van der Woude, and was called The First Modern Economy. And the claim of that book is also about the Dutch economy, is that the Netherlands, during its golden age, 16th and 17th century, had a modern economy and modern economic growth without the steam engine. A lot of commentators, even historians, confused the rise of capitalism with the arrival of the steam engine. But these are two separate processes, although you could argue that the steam engine could not have emerged without the emergence of market economies and capitalism. But the steam engine is rather a consequence than the origin of capitalism, if you will. That's the position we take in this book. And why the Netherlands were late um, in having uh, an industrial revolution of their own is a quagmire in its own right. But basically, the story uh, consists of two parts. One is the Dutch had invested heavily in the sort of wood technology that preceded the steam engine. And there were very limited and poorly accessible coal reserves in the Netherlands. So it wasn't very attractive to work with coal uh, at that time. But of course, eventually, uh, Dutch businessmen couldn't avoid adopting steam power and also switch to uh, modern industry. But it's modern industry is not the same as capitalism or even as economic growth. These are separate concepts with their own history. So is, is your view that the, you know, things like the steam engine and modern economic growth and these particular technological developments are, as you said, more the consequence of these more foundational, uh, you know, institution laying, the, all yeah. the groundwork that was going on with the building of markets and, and formal yeah. and informal institutions? Yeah. Okay. That so makes sense. economic historians of England, I think, are now unanimous in saying that uh, before the Industrial Revolution, you had an agricultural revolution, uh, the enclosures, uh, all kinds of changes in the countryside that created or helped create the sort of urban markets that um, modern industry and the steam engine then started to produce for. And do, do you think that the population size and density also played a role? It seems like you you, you talk in the book about these well-developed markets uh, developing in in the Netherlands, but nevertheless, like the population of London and and probably other centers of commerce yeah. in England were still higher and denser. Well, in our book, what is crucial is urbanization. So, um, uh, and and then in two uh, shapes and forms. One, the percentage of the population living in an urban environment. And two, in the Netherlands, what is very distinctive is the fact that there was no megacity like London, but there were all these 
medium-sized towns distributed around the country. And they were competing uh, among each, each other and at the same time collaborating. England has a very different type of urban uh, network. There's one megacity. The rest of them, at least in the 17th century, were much smaller than your average Dutch city. And so it's a very lopsided system in England. And so there was very little competition among the cities in England, for example. Right? And that worked very well in the Netherlands. So we're talking right now about what, what is kind of like, the, in a lot of ways, the culmination of all of this development. Can we back up a little bit and say something yeah. about, you know, how, how Netherlands got on this tr this unique track to begin with? Like, how did Netherlands, for instance, come to escape or avoid traditional European feudalism to some extent? Yeah. Or is yeah. that accurate so to say? It, it didn't completely, but um, uh, to some extent it did. And the reason is that much of the land of what we now know as the Netherlands, and then particularly the sort of landscape that people associate with the Netherlands, uh, that is to say, flat, uh, covered in grass, uh, the polders were basically new land. They, these lands were only populated in the Middle Ages as a result of the increase in the European population in general. So you get population increase in Europe, People start to explore and develop new parts. It's a little bit like the American frontier. The population is branching out and they started to develop and cultivate the marshy areas in the western parts of what we now know as the Netherlands. And because of that frontier, just like in the United States, you get these small businesses, independent-minded people who are not subject to traditional authorities because they are not present in those areas. And they are far away. They're in Washington, as it were, and have no direct influence over what is going on in these poorly developed parts. So what you get there is basically a peasant society with very little top-down authority. So I, I understand how that could lead to the development of innovative and, and dynamic economic institutions. But yeah. what's what's the story? Because it sounds to me like that's that probably wasn't a completely unique thing, that there were peasant societies true. that were independent no, from true. central authorities. So what was what was special about the, the Dutch well, experience in that regard? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what helped a lot was that it was on the coast, so easily accessible. So you could trade with other parts of Europe easily. What also helped was that it was located quite close to a, a hotspot of um, medieval Europe, what is now Belgium, eh? Flanders and Brabant, cities that were already flourishing like Bruges and Ghent and Antwerp where some of the capital came from that was used to develop these new uh, territories. And it also gave uh, the Dutch easy access to a lot of foreign trade. So they were sort of developing quite close to these much more active parts of the European economy. 
but still protected from some of the problems of those more developed economies. They didn't have to wage war all the time uh, because they weren't rich. Uh, they didn't have the problem of um, aggressive princes that wanted to take part of their um, revenues. So um, it helped to be sort of in the shadow of that more developed economy. It sounds like it's it's threading this needle. It has this sweet spot of having all of these good and like tight social and economic connections to kind of cultural hotspots, but still having some like political and military isolation from the potentially like extractive yeah. princes and capitals yeah. of their own society. Yeah, that's right. And therefore, it wasn't, let's say, a development that you could easily repeat in other places. It was a sort of happy coincidence, if you will. And uh, that's also part of what we say in the book, is that there is no generalizable model that you can extract from this story. You can see helpful ingredients, but it's difficult to replicate precisely this. And you can't export it to Africa and say, well, if you do it like this, you'll be fine. Is that to say that that you don't think this story has any particular actionable like policy implications for a, a modern society trying to develop or just no, no silver bullet? No, no, no. So no silver bullet, but yes, there are implications. So one of the themes that is important in the book is um, that there were a lot of bottom-up institutions. So civil society was really important in these Dutch urban environments. Can you say what you mean and by civil society for a second? Sorry. Well, yeah. the uh, citizens of those um, towns were well organized in guilds, in uh, civic militias, in neighborhood organizations. And although it wasn't a democracy, they could use their organizations to persuade the uh, local authorities to do their bidding. So, um, and likewise, the towns were represented in regional um, assemblies, which helped them to coordinate, but also to put pressure on the national authorities. And so in the Dutch Republic in the 17th century, authority is flowing from the bottom to the top rather than the other way around. There was no equivalent of the American president in the Netherlands during the Middle Ages or the Dutch Golden Age. And there was really no individual who held a similar position. Uh, there was no king, there was no president, there was a commander-in-chief of the army and the navy. He was an important uh, nobleman, but that was about all. And even during several periods, the um, towns and nobles decided not to appoint a person like that. So the Dutch Republic was a state without a head. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Kaufman, and I just wanted to take a minute to thank everybody so much for listening to my show. This has really been a dream come true for me to be able to speak with scholars that I admire and read books every week that I'm always excited to read. This is still a small show, still a new show, still growing, and I appreciate everyone listening so much. 
if you want to help me grow my show, the simplest thing you can do is to write a review, just a short review, a sentence or two on Apple Podcasts, or just recommend it to a friend. So I'm just reaching out to you to beg you humbly on my knees to please do that. I'm going to try not to bug you too much about it, but here I am bugging you. Anyway, back to the show. Okay, so you you mentioned that the rise of Dutch capitalism was in a lot of ways a bottom-up pr- process with a lot of it was. Yeah. formal and informal yeah. organizations within civil society. Yeah. And I wanted yeah. to ask you about two of these kinds of organizations. So you just mentioned yeah. guilds. There's yeah. maybe a maybe a popular impression <clears throat> and and maybe yeah. it's more true in other regions of Europe, but yeah. I want to hear your description yeah. of how this plays out yeah. in the Netherlands of are, are the guilds primarily, you know, a positive force of building, you know, uh, economic connections, or are they also a kind of a stultifying force of, of, of keeping out competition or is it some of both? Exactly. Eh? You're hitting the nail on the head with that last uh, remark. It's difficult to say. Um, there has been a lot of debate about this. There are people who claim that uh, it was all uh, extremely bad and uh, monopoly and and indeed stilting competition and innovation. There are others who say, and I'm one of them, uh, that um, it all depended. In some environments, they were indeed just that, but in other environments, and the Netherlands seemed to have been such an environment, a lot of these guilds were actually helping small businesses to develop. Uh, they were a very innovative environments. And in the book, uh, an example that we give is the painting industry, which was a genuine industry in uh, the Netherlands in the 17th century. Very innovative. Think Rembrandt, think Vermeer, and so on and so forth. Uh, people who did things that were uh, not, had not been done before, these people were all members of guilds and they didn't find those guilds restrictive. You could even act, uh, argue that the guilds, these artist guilds, helped promote the industry. For instance, they uh, organized uh, exhibitions of new paintings where customers could come and look at them. They organized a training of new uh, painters, apprenticeships. They um, organized lectures where um, customers, potential customers, could come and hear about what distinguished a good from a bad painting, but also mingle with the painters, so to get to know them and their work, of course. So this is an example of an industry that was blossoming, that was innovative, and that was organized uh, in guilds. So it's very difficult to say, uh, let's say in general, if guilds were good or bad. But we can say that in the Netherlands, in the Dutch Republic, but also in its uh, predecessors, uh, guilds in general do not have, uh, did not stand in the way of economic development. Yeah. And the whole idea that guilds were monopolizing an industry is slightly misleading. They were not uh, single producers. They were organizations in which dozens, sometimes hundreds of individual businesses were 
put together under one roof, if you will. The monopoly was only that you could not work in that specific industry without joining the organization. But actually, this is still true in a lot of businesses. Eh? You can't be an actor in the United States unless you're a member of the specific union that organizes actors. It doesn't seem to have prevented Hollywood from dominating the film industry. It's it's a little bit um, too easy to say, oh, guilds monopolized an industry and therefore they were bad. It didn't work that way, at least not in the Netherlands. And it's probably, you know, like you say, with, with modern equivalents, I'm sure there are various corporations and guilds and unions, and some of which are a little bit more exactly. uh, controlling and monopolistic yes. than others. Yes, yes. But uh, for instance, the doctors, I'm not sure about the United States, but in my country, the doctors are in a sort of guild because they're all members of the same associations. You can't be a doctor, a working doctor, without having followed all the rules that they set. You need their a signature on a piece of paper to be able to and i think it's to the benefit of the patients because these people weed out the um the quacks and uh and the people who who do a bad job so yeah it's like that in the united states too and it's well i mean and it, that's substantially more monopolistic than in the acting example because in addition to the american medical association which i think started as a private organization it, it does have the force of the state behind it. So you, yeah, it's, yeah. You, you legally can't be a doctor without being exactly. a member of that guild. But I, I think we should overall be grateful for that. And though there are problems also related to this, I'm aware of that. Another organization that I thought was really interesting to read about, and I'm not sure I'm going to say it right, Marque, M-A-R-K-E. Yeah. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Can you say yeah. what Marque, those are? Yeah. Marque, can yeah. you say what those organizations so, so, were? Yeah, those are organizations that existed in the east of the country, which, uh, by the way, was economically the least developed. And they are associations of farmers who collectively exploit certain parts of the village that are not privately owned, eh? but that uh, where, for instance, everyone can graze a cow or a pig, uh, and one of the problems that you have there is that as a collective, there are potentially no obstacles against overgrazing, overexploitation of their shared assets. And so this is what they have to regulate. And, and, um, and uh, the idea here is that these independent farmers were still collaborating to uh, govern a shared resource. Uh, and there is some interesting economic theory. Uh, Eleanor Ostrom, who won yeah. the uh, Nobel Prize in Economics, she has written a lot about this. And um, it's also applicable to these marker societies in uh, the Netherlands, indeed. This is the idea of the tragedy of the commons and how yeah. to manage a resource that doesn't have a, doesn't have a, a clear owner. But this no. particular organization yeah. is one example of how local societies have come together to manage these problems. Exactly. Eh? And overcome, uh, yeah, to avoid really the, that uh, tragedy. Eh? Uh, because that's the whole idea, of course, of the tragedy of the commons that ultimately 
um, too much fish will be dragged from the sea or too much cattle will be uh, grazing on a particular piece of land and ultimately it will be destroyed by the people uh, uh, whom it's serving. And this didn't happen in those market societies. And and these organizations were primarily or exclusively were these were local uh, yeah. kind of grassroots yeah. organizations. Yeah, yeah. So in our book, these the local environment is very important, and we argue really uh, that uh, one of the keys to the success of the Dutch economy, and it was a success, we claim, uh, and we think we can prove that. Uh, is the fact that for many centuries, this economy was dominated by institutions that were primarily local and not national. So the, we've been talking about some of these examples of these kinds of organizations and institutions that yeah. grew up locally. Um, what about the more top-down element? What was the role of the of the state in, in Dutch capitalism, either from the national, the Dutch Republic, or, or from the, the imperial centers? of yeah. Spain or, or, or whatever? Was it primarily yeah. just uh, trying to avoid their issues or did they play a productive role in this process as well? Uh, they did because first and foremost, like all states at the time, they were um, tasked with delivering security or in the case of the Netherlands, also military aggression. And so the Dutch state was basically a war machine uh, but it also coordinated certain things, particularly taxation to pay for the war effort uh, between the various parts of the Dutch Republic. The Dutch Republic, like the United States, was a federal state. Uh, so a lot of uh, authority was devolved on the provinces and from there on local communities. But uh, waging war was a very important um, role of the central states, the states general. And as I explained earlier, insofar as the Dutch Republic had a head of state, he was the commander in chief of the army and the fleet. I think compared to contemporary uh, states in Europe in the 17th century, the most important um, contribution of the Dutch central state was that it didn't get in the way. And most European states were basically waging war against their own citizens. Think of the Dutch, uh, the English Civil War in the middle of the 17th century. Something similar was happening in France around the same time. So you see a lot of these governments waging war against their own citizens because they're in the business of expanding their role in society in the netherlands it was almost the other way around after the dutch uh, revolt the central state was minimal and a lot of authority was as i said devolved to the provinces and the cities what do you think was the relationship between dutch capitalism as it was rising and the uh, representative Republican institutions in the Netherlands. Were they in tension with each other or were they mutually reinforcing? I think the latter. So they were mutually reinforcing in the sense that the way the state was constructed 
urban representatives had a major voice in establishing state policy. And um, more particularly, the province of Holland, which is usually confused with the Netherlands as a whole, but was only a part of it. However, the most important part of it um, was, uh, on the one hand, fully integrated in the state as a whole, but at the same time acted as a state in its own right. So it had its own foreign policy, for example. And sometimes if it couldn't get the other provinces to agree with its uh, preferred policy initiatives, it simply took those initiatives on its own. Uh, it's a little bit like California insisting on military action against uh, the Mexicans, uh, or maybe Texas is a better example, insisting on military action against the Mexicans, Washington saying, well, maybe not, and then going in by itself. That was happening in the Netherlands in the 17th century. Not very often, but it could, it happened on one or two occasions. Right? They sent a fleet of their own when the national authorities were not wanting to do that. And the reason why they could do that was that much of the fleet in the 17th century consisted not of dedicated men of war, but of commercial ships, which were temporarily sort of converted into ships for warfare. Can, Holland continue. had a lot of uh, those ships, those commercial ships, and had a huge commercial fleet. So it was easy to do. What was the relationship between Dutch religious liberty and the rise of Dutch capital? Same question. Were these, were these mutually yeah. reinforcing concepts, or were they in tension with each other? No, they were uh, reinforcing, but not quite in the way that people usually think. Capitalism is not the result of Protestantism. Let me underline that. I've been saying earlier, uh, things that you see happening in the Low Countries were also happening in Italy, a place where the Reformation never took hold. So, and the same is true in the Southern Netherlands, what is now Belgium, that remained Catholic, although that was due partly to uh, military conquest by the Spaniards. But at the time, at the start of the Dutch Golden Age, the Reformation was also introduced in the Netherlands. It remained for a very long time a minority religion. Uh, there were a lot of other people, uh, Catholic uh, faith communities, including uh, a lot of Catholics, but also Jews, of course, uh, even some Muslims, but they were just a handful. And um, what was really important in the Netherlands was not only the arrival of Protestantism, but also the fact that in the Dutch constitution, freedom of conscience, including uh, uh, religious freedom, was inscribed. So in the Netherlands, although the Protestants had a sort of favored position, the other faith groups could not be persecuted, prosecuted, and so on. And they weren't. Although 
as a Catholic, life wasn't easy. You couldn't hold high office, for example, as a Catholic in the Dutch Republic. Your church buildings had to be hidden from view. Uh, there were other practices that were anti-Catholic, but by and large, and again, compared to other European countries, the Netherlands, and more specifically Holland, its most dynamic part, were uh, relatively free of from religious bigotry. Which I'm sure is important if you're constantly doing business with strangers Absolutely. and people, if, if you and want to do business argument. with people who don't share your religion. Exactly. It was an argument. So people in Amsterdam were saying we shouldn't be intolerant because it's bad for business. Yeah. Um, conventional wisdom says that capitalism is the prime or main driver of you know increased material inequality. What do you think was the relationship between inequality and the rise of Dutch capitalism? Is it, is it, is it that simple? Is it more complicated? Is it the opposite? It is more complicated because we do see uh, an increase in inequality, but not spectacularly so. And one of the reasons is that uh, while capitalism was flourishing in the Netherlands, so was social welfare. Right? There are, uh, quantitative um, research by some of my colleagues has demonstrated that the best welfare systems the most generous welfare systems in pre-modern Europe were available in Italy and the Low Countries, precisely the hotbeds of early modern capitalism. So, and these helped to sort of um, reduce uh, inequalities. We also see that from uh, a huge influx of migrants from other parts of Europe. Uh, obviously, these people were increasing wealth inequalities because most of them arrived dead poor, but they came to the Netherlands because, and it's the same story, a parallel with uh, American immigration, because they were seeing opportunities that were lacking in their countries or places of origin. Uh, another factor that helped to limit the uh, extent of uh, inequality was that not only were the cities flourishing, but the countryside was also doing very well. And so you uh, you see um, in Dutch society that the rich are definitely getting richer. There's no doubt about that. But there are mechanisms that also support, let's say, the the bottom half of the uh, income pyramid and institutions were an important part of that and to come back to the guilds we talked about them earlier one of the things that they did from the late 16th century was launch social security arrangements so a lot of these guilds had an opportunity to insure yourself against a number of issues including unemployment and uh, long-time illnesses. So once again, these these kinds of welfare arrangements are being uh, are developing from organizations like the guilds or from lo local government or or Absolutely. a combination. Yeah, not, all not of this not, was local, not central. Yeah. yeah, 
all of this was local. Yeah, and are again initiatives not necessarily by the authorities, but usually by civil organizations. Can you say something about the rather large disparity between these developments and kind of Dutch liberalism at home versus the more exploitative, extractive yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dutch colonial possessions yeah. and uh, abroad? And so this is an important uh, dimension of the book. Is So we uh, report, as you will have heard, rather positively about uh, what was happening in the Netherlands itself. But once you get to Dutch colonialism, which really uh, starts around 1600 uh, and uh, becomes extremely successful from a, an economic point of view to the point where uh, more than half of all um, European passages uh, to Asia were made in between 1600 and 1700 by Dutch ships, so more than all other European countries combined, dominating, therefore, the trade between Asia and uh, uh, Europe. Uh, to a lesser extent, but also heavily involved in the Atlantic uh, trade, including, of course, the trafficking of humans, so the slave trade. Um, what we argue in the book is that in very different environments where the institutional constraints that operated in the Netherlands were absent, Dutch merchants or the Dutch in general behave as badly as anyone else. So it reinforces our argument that for these economic systems to not only work uh, efficiently and therefore uh, generate profits, but also in a, let's say, more humane and morally uh, uh, acceptable way, you definitely need the institutional constraints that were operating in the Netherlands at the time, but that were not available uh, elsewhere. And the same people who, you might argue, acted in a morally justifiable way in the Netherlands were not doing that as soon as they went to Africa, the Americas, Indonesia and other places in Asia. And actually, I understand that um, the Dutch or descendants of the Dutch in New York were among those who continued to um, employ, is not the right word, but to have slaves in their homes in New York eh? very long. Yeah, and uh, this, and this story, uh, you know, is analogous to the story of England and America, and it's stark because these are their societies that have a rich tradition, a rich liberatory tradition, and tradition of you know uh, social and economic yeah. liberalism. So yeah. the contrast is so stark when you yeah. see yeah. these other yeah. features, yeah. and and it's even starker when you know that in the Netherlands, slavery was legally prohibited. Hey, you could not enslave a person in the Netherlands, nor could you bring an enslaved person to the Netherlands and continue to hold that kind of authority over that person. And so if you brought enslaved people into the Netherlands, 
they were freed by the court. I believe this is ultimately how slavery died out in the British Empire as well, because of there was course, a similar feature there. Did did I? I mean, I'm aware that Western Europe in general was like probably the first large region of the world where slavery, at least locally, was eventually stamped out, and then you know, and all these Western European societies still had slaves abroad. Um, did did the Netherlands abolish slavery locally prior to? I mean, within the Netherlands, you know, more early than other parts of Europe. It was never accepted in the Netherlands. So to the best of our, my knowledge, in the Middle Ages, there were no slaves in the Netherlands. So it was always marginal to the phenomenon of slavery after the Romans left, I suppose. Okay, sure. That makes it all the more remarkable that they still became so heavily involved in uh, the plantation economy, in uh, the slave trade in the 17th century, because they knew very well that it was really unacceptable. And they came up with all kinds of excuses. There was a debate in the Netherlands in the 17th and 18th century. Can you really do this? And there were, well, maybe not lots of people, but there were definitely people of authority, uh, ministers in the Dutch Reformed Church who said, you can't do it. And Particularly, you cannot do it particularly when they have been converted to Christianity. Eh? That is totally wrong. But then other people say, well, they made up all kinds of excuses, which, well, still helps people to come to terms with it. You said that the Dutch, Dutch slavery was bigger in Asia, correct? Yes. It was bigger in Asia, particularly in the 17th century. Yeah, but the thing was, in Asia, there was no plantation economy. And so it was a different kind of slavery in many cases. It was much more like the sort of enslavement that you had in New York, which was New Netherland before it became New York. So more like domestic there, slaves? Absolutely. That's that's uh, most of those people in Asia were employed as domestic slaves. Moreover, they stayed, not all of them, but the majority of them, within the sort of same cultural environment. Eh? That also makes it very different from what happened in the Atlantic, where people were taken out of their cultural African environment and transferred to a totally new environment in the Americas. And also had no hope that they might ever go back. Whereas in Indonesia, a lot of these people who lived as slaves, maybe not they themselves, but their children might hope to be manumitted or liberated and return to their villages of origin, for example. So in that sense, uh, I'm not saying it was nice in Asia or I'm not justifying what was happening there, but it was not quite the same. Yeah, but certainly in, in any time, you'd rather be um, you'd rather be a That's, domestic slave than a slave in the f in fields or mines or in military yeah, service yeah, where you're far away from your master. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But you would still rather be free. Right. Certainly. So, I mean, these are degrees of. Uh, liberty or the lack of it, if you will. At some points in your book, you talk about uh, Adam Smith 
and the wealth of nations and how he talks about the Netherlands and, and recognizes the Netherlands as being, um, you know, sort of on the frontier of, of economic development. Um, obviously he's, he's writing at a, well, he couldn't know it, but he's kind of writing on the eve and the beginning of the industrial revolution and, and this huge explosion in economic growth. But seems like he believed that even societies that really pushed this to the limit and and were very free and market oriented would plateau in their in their yeah. growth of their yeah. wealth. Did were there any writers or thinkers at the time that foresaw the the possibilities or some a glimmer of the possibility of how much just how much economic growth was actually possible, or did no one, as far as you know, see I, this coming? Well, I'm I'm not aware of them, um, not least because. Economics as a a field of inquiry didn't exist at the time. So not only um, is has Adam Smith produced possibly the single most influential theory of social science about how economies work, but he was also one of the founding fathers of economics as a discipline. So there were people so. The British had a very ambiguous relationship with the Dutch and Dutch economic development. So on the one hand, they were deeply impressed and also not a little bit jealous of what was happening in the Netherlands, particularly in the 17th century. And they were also trying to consciously copy some of the things that they saw as crucial to that uh, success. So while they were admiring the Dutch, the British were also jealous of the Dutch and uh, thinking hard about how they could sort of take away with military means, but also imitate through copying certain things um, um, and um, yeah, get a head start over uh, the Dutch. And that ambiguity is reflected in uh, Adam Smith's analysis, if you will, because on the one hand, he writes with admiration, but then at the same time, he also sees what you might consider as the end of the cycle. And one of the problems here that he was also uh, confronting, but I think in a sort of implicit way, is that he is not only talking about economic development, but also about economic leadership. Right? So in world history, if you will, at least in the modern, the last millennium, there have been three dominant powers in the world economy. The Dutch in the 17th century, the British in the 18th and the 19th century, and the Americans in the 20th 20th and 21st century still going on, but eh, as we can all see on the front pages of our newspaper, there is a, a struggle about all of this going on. And maybe the Chinese will take over, maybe not, who knows. Smith is writing at a time when, in many ways, the Dutch have lost their edge over the English. The English are the next in line. But of course, we now know that their economic success wasn't everlasting either. They, well, look at the whole Brexit. In many ways, it's still uh, the result of this loss of 
global dominance and the, the fact that the British economy has been unable to sort of restructure in a way that is compatible with their status as a middle range sort of power in the world. I think there is a lot of literature and perhaps Smith is part of that problem that confuses economic development and growth with this particular situation that if you're on top of the world, you might not stay there forever. And it's important to note, I think, that just because you're not at the leading edge economically or politically doesn't mean you're not a well-off and wealthy society. I mean... Very good point. Eh? Actually, I would claim you're better off not being the top dog in the world because then you have to fight all these wars, spend a lot of money on military uh, campaigns. Uh, I think so as well. Of your citizens. Eh? There we are. Um uh, in a way, the Netherlands are now in the extremely comfortable position of being among the richest nations in the world. Uh, if you look at the happiness in the uh, rankings, um, even though complaining is uh, a national hobby in this country, we have really no reasons to do that. And, uh, uh, Dutch children are uh, self-reporting. Um, a great amount of happiness. Things are really going well in this country and we are not responsible for the problems of the world. So it's the best place to be. I will grant you that. I think so. And I I also think complaining is probably a luxury good. It's something you can do a lot yeah, of when you're wealthy. Fair point. But you might argue that in many ways, California is in a similar position. Yeah. It's far away from the problems, has all the sunshine that we are missing. <laughs> uh, it's phenomenally wealthy. Do you have any recommendations for books that you think complement this book especially well? I think a lot of the other books in the series were now... Uh, uh, so this book was published in a series edited by Joel Mokier. Uh, for Princeton University Press. I hope I'm allowed to say that on this podcast. Of course, and that yes. series, that series has a lot of interesting uh, titles. I was perusing the list earlier. Yeah, yeah. Possibly uh, the most influential, not possibly, but surely the most influential was a book uh, comparing um, England and China. It's called The Great Divergence by Kenneth Pomeranz was published in 2000, and it has kept economic historians busy ever since. I'll include I that would, recommendation on the show notes. Yeah, no, that, that would be a really a good... Um, if you want to know more about the Netherlands and its golden age, I've written a book about the Dutch golden age. It's pub available in English, but there's also a website called Five Best Books, I think. Yes, and I have I have an item there about the five best books on the Dutch Golden Age. People can have a look there. You're the author of the of that list and article. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I am. I am. five. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm not the author because I've been interviewed, but indeed I am the person who selected the books, and I wasn't allowed to select my own book. I hasten to add, 
I'll Fair include enough. a link to that as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's fine. Yeah, well, that's I'll link idea. to your your author page on Amazon as well, so people can can uh, follow okay. up with your okay. other work if you, okay. if they'd like okay. to as well. Well, that's good. Um, are you or your co-author working on any upcoming projects at the moment? I'm writing a book with uh, somebody in London about artisans, uh, and it's you you. We'll talk again in five years about their role in, before the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and I'm writing a book about the Beatles. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it nice. is fun. Nice to have different academic interests. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is really a private hobby. But I think as a historian, I have something to say about the Beatles that nobody else has done in quite this way. I have a a table of contents, but not a single letter is on paper of the text. So I have to wait a while. We'll yeah, but it's to fun that. to do. Where can people find you if they want to keep up with your work? At the Utrecht University webpage. Uh, beautiful. Any any social media presence or anything or, or the university? Okay, well, good for a, you. Good for you. I'm old and therefore old fashioned. <laughs> awesome. Well, my guest today has been Martin Prack. And his book, once again, co-authored with Jan Lauten van Zanden, is Pioneers of Capitalism, The Netherlands, 1000 to 1800. Did I get his name right? You did. Congratulations. Awesome. Martin, thank you so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.